Hello, sports fans, and welcome to another edition of Yesterday Sports on the Sports History Network. And make sure to check out sportshistorynetwork.com slash giveaways. I have two signed books I'm giving away. One is titled No Nonsense Old School Weight Training, and the other is Reliving 1970s Old School Football. This podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the yesteryear of your favorite sport. You can learn more at sportshistorynetwork.com. Fans of the NFL's Detroit Lions are a patient lot, yet also very cynical. Over the years, these loyal, long-suffering fans from the Motor City have adopted a slogan that is heartwarming and hope-filled, but it is also equally filled with heartbreak, cynicism, and angst. The slogan says simply, Rebuilding since 1957. The year, 1957, was the last time the Lions won the NFL championship. To put that into some sort of perspective, a man by the name of Dwight D. Eisenhower was president, and people still filled their weeknights not watching television, but listening to their favorite programs on the radio. Now, some six decades later, fans of the Detroit Lions are armed with something they haven't had in more than a generation, and that is optimism, anticipation, and hope. Hope that this could be the beginning stages of success that was only reserved for the Pistons, the Red Wings, and Tigers in Motown. Hello once again sports fans, greetings and salutations and all that other sort of stuff. I'm Dana Augusta, your host and sports history tour guide here on the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast where we highlight what's going on in the world of sports but placing a historical spin on it. In this episode we will talk to the co-host of the podcast the week in the world of football and also and just as important a lifelong detroit lions fan mr randy snow he will share some of his memories of his team in the honolulu blue and silver and his thoughts of his lions becoming the toast of the early nfl regular season later in the show we will talk a little baseball this week is the start of the major league baseball postseason and two of the teams that will be battling it out this October to reach the Fall Classic actually faced off in the World Series 40 years ago. We'll send a shout out to the 1983 World Series. This was a unique series, nicknamed by sports writers the I-95 Series. And it was the first World Series since 1956 where both teams didn't use air travel for road games. It was only 100 miles between the two cities and this series was also special because it was the first World Series I remember watching. And of course, we will do our historically speaking matchups for week five. That includes a game that was, re- that was referenced after the Dolphins 70 to 20 destruction of the Denver Broncos. It was, the, it was an NFL championship game as well as one of the most famous revenge games of all time. 
Also, we have a pair of games that are rematches of past Super Bowls and two games that were conference championship games that laid the foundation for two of the best rivalries in the NFL. All that and much, much more coming up on this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, where we put a historical spin on sports headlines. Historically Speaking Sports, it is a member of the Sports History Network. The Pigskin Tales Podcast is part of the Sports History Network, your headquarters for the sports yesteryear. Hosted by Ross Bliley, the Pigskin Tales Podcast takes you on a journey through life of pro football stars such as Ernie Nevers, Red Grange, and Fran Tarkenton. Plus, you might not know them real well, but you can hear stories about Bill Brown, Grady Alderman, and Dave Osborne. You can learn more on these players at sportshistorynetwork.com backslash podcasts backslash pigskin dash tales. Hello, welcome back sports fans to the program. I'm Dana Augusta and this is the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. Lions fans have been proclaiming, somewhat sarcastically, rebuilding since 1957. That was when the Detroit Lions was last kings of the NFL jungle. This season, some 64 years later, there's more optimism and may I dare say hope for the Lions to end their championship drought at long last. On this week's main event, we brought in the co-host of the podcast, The Week in the World of Pro Football, Mr. Randy Snow, to talk about his Lions and the cherished and not-so-cherished memories of his team. Happy to be here. Glad, glad to talk Lions anytime I can. The Detroit Lions, for me, as a kid that grew up in Louisiana, the only time we ever saw the Lions was on Thanksgiving. Anytime the Lions seemed like they were on national television, I had to ask, uh, when it wasn't Thanksgiving, we had to ask if it actually was Thanksgiving, because that's the only time we really saw them. But <laughs> this team this year has captivated the entire country, because think about it, a lot of teams, people make predictions on who's going to be in the Super Bowl, or possibly a Super Bowl contender, but the Lions have never come up, at least not since I was in high school with Barry Sanders. But this year's different. Talk about this year's team and the excitement that that you feel, not only that you personally feel, but you see around the city of Detroit or around Michigan pretty much. Well, I think everybody, of course, is understandably very excited about the Lions this year. But it's a reserved excitement because uh-huh. we, we've been through this before. We've had great seasons. They've started off uh, really good. Uh, And then the the season goes along, and by the end of the season, they just missed the playoffs. So uh, once again, our hearts were broken uh, after seeing the Lions play really well. And so I think for a lot of fans, it's just like, I'm happy that they're doing well, but I'm just, I can't jump in with both feet yet. It's it's just that sort of thing where we've been beaten down over the years so much by this team, uh, having them show us that, yes, they can be a good team. But in the end, they just they find a way to lose in in the most horrific fashion. Uh, I've seen some uh, tremendous victories and some devastating defeats in my time. In fact, uh, you know my my boys are are Detroit Lions fans along with me. I kind of made them that way. But uh, there was a, a loss a few years ago. I don't, I don't even remember the game, but 
at the time I was so devastated and I felt worse for them because I'd been through this before, but they had not experienced this sort of thing. For me, it was just another devastating loss. And I actually sent them both an email and I said, yeah, I'm sorry that I raised you to be Detroit Lions fans. Uh, it's, uh, I, I, I can handle this at my age, but you know, you guys are so young. One of my sons, I think, still holds on to that email, and he'll bring that up every once in a while, that I, I was uh, profusely apologized for making them Lions fans. But boy, are we loving this year so far. And uh, uh, my own brother, uh, who lived out in Arizona, he was always saying, you know, why are you still following that team? Why are you still a Detroit Lions fan? Haven't you learned anything over the course of your life and being a fan? And I said, well, I'm still there because – when they do win, it's going to be so awesome. that That's what I'm waiting for. See, I came through a similar situation. I mean, people that listen to the podcast know that I am a diehard Chargers fan. I've been a Chargers fan, and mainly because of my dad, who is a diehard Raiders fan. And we go back and forth and everything like that. But I come from a household and a region that is completely saints. And it's been that way my whole life, but I didn't root for the Saints because when I came up, there was the, it was the era of the Aints when people went to the Superdome with bags on their heads, you know, so I wasn't going to be associated with them because I was like seven, eight years old at the time. And I wanted to go with a team that was a winner. And little did I know that the Saints would win the Super Bowl before the, before the Chargers would, but it's that same guarded optimism that I saw when I was. In New York, when I was in Louisiana, when the Saints finally won the Super Bowl, it was that same guarded optimism like, okay, this team's really good, but we're just waiting for the other shoe to drop. You know, we're just waiting for like, okay, something bad's going to happen and we know it is, you know, and that's that same type of feeling that I, the same type of vibe that I get from you talking about the Lions because you know, I remember watching Barry Sanders in 91 with that team and they destroying the Cowboys in the division around it and going up to Washington where they haven't won in a thousand years. You know, I, I remember that. And I also remember thinking this team's going to be good for a long, 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 long time. You know, did you feel that way back in 91 when, you know, when the Lions were, you know, running the, the at the time, the NFC Central? No, we, we thought that, you know, once Barry was hitting his stride and, you know, the, making the playoffs for the first time since 1957 in that 91 season. Yeah, we thought, oh, oh boy, we're, you know, we may not do it this year, but we'll be back next year. And the Lions did make the playoffs uh, for several years. I mean, right after 91, they made it for a few years. And then in the 2000s, they, they made the playoffs a few more times, but they could never get a playoff win for whatever reason. I mean, a lot of fans around here will blame the referees especially in that uh, Dallas Cowboys game when it was clearly pass interference and they didn't call it uh, on, on the Cowboys. But I digress. That's uh, that's water <laughs> under the bridge now. But it, so we we did think that the team was going to be good after that. And and they they were good enough to make the playoffs, you know, to squeak into the playoffs with a 800 or a, a 800 record or something like that. But yeah, it just, it was never to be. And so that's why a lot of fans today are just like taking that wait and see attitude, like you said. Well, you, well, you have been a fan since 1975 when yes. the Lions moved into the Silver Dome. Yes. When the Silver Dome was brand new and brand new. It was, and, and to be a fan that long, you know, and see that, that long, when you, 
as a fan looking at that at that team for so long, who was beside? Obviously, Barry Sanders is at re- really at the top of the list as far as like the great players that you've seen and some of your favorite players. Who were some other great players from your time as a Lions fan that you were like, yeah, I really like seeing him. That a lot of people may not remember or really realize that had great careers with the Lions. Well, when I first started following them in 1975, I was 16 years old. I was still living at home with my parents. And I had a poster on my wall, a Sports Illustrated poster of quarterback Greg Landry of the Detroit Lions. He was he was my the first quarterback that I really got to know with the team. And he was really good. But, uh, you know, he just wasn't good enough to get us to a Super Bowl. But he was he was a darn good quarterback. But you know who, who else we had on those uh, late 70s teams? We had a guy by the name of Lem Barney. Yes. Uh, who's now in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, defensive back, and a tight end by the name of Charlie Sanders, who's also in the Hall of Fame. And I saw both of those guys play. They were incredible. Uh, I got to meet Lem Barney once and, and shake his hand. Um, but, yeah, both of those guys are in the Pro Football Hall of Fame, and I got to see them in the early days. Uh, and then as the years went by, Detroit has always had some great players on their team. You think about uh, linebacker Chris Spielman back yes. in the uh, uh, 80s and, and early 90s. He was fantastic. Uh, many great players uh, have come and gone. Uh, Al Bubba Baker yes. was a defensive lineman with the Lions. Uh, he was he was awesome. Um, didn't make the Hall of Fame or anything, but but when he played for Detroit, he was just uh, I think he was defensive rookie of the year uh, his first year. I forget what year that was, but uh, we, we've always had great players, but we've never been able to put together a great team. Mm-hmm. And I talk about how. Uh, a few years ago, you know, we had Matthew Stafford, we had Indomitian Sue, and we had um, uh, Calvin Johnson. Between those three guys, they made up over 70% of our, uh, the, the roster's um, payroll. Wow. So, so with those three guys, you know, everybody else was whoever they could pick up off the street for, for next to nothing. And that's why the team, you know, wasn't uh, doing anything at that time. Just because they, you know, they put so much money into those three guys. Now, you know, and Dominican Sue, he's still out there playing. I think he's with Philadelphia now. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and uh, Calvin Johnson, he's in the Pro Football Hall of Fame. And Matthew Stafford just won a Super Bowl uh, a year or two ago. So, you know, we, we've proven that we can find talent. We just haven't been able to put it together like Dan Campbell is doing now. He is, uh, he is very revered right now by Lions fans because he's doing it the right way. That and our general manager, um, between the two of them, they are putting together a team the right way uh, with depth, with um, uh, players of character. You know, they're, they're really doing it the right way. And, and that's what really has us encouraged is that this team is being built not for just this year, but for several years to come. And, and we're all excited about that. One thing that I've noticed about as a student of sports history, as I am, that every Detroit team that have won championships, the other teams that are in the city of Detroit, they have this grittiness about them, and at the same time, they have this blue-collar ethic about them where there's really no superstars. Think about it. I mean, with the Red Wings, it's known as Hockey Town, you had um, Iserman, who was basically just a regular dude. Um Joe Dumars, who is where I'm from in Louisiana, a basketball legend, but in 
But if you really think about it, he's just like another regular guy. Barry Sanders, quiet and humble, you know. And then in the, with the Tigers, you had Lou Whitaker, you had Al Kaline, those others. They were superstars in their own right, but they were not flashy. And this Lions team that I could tell with Jerry Goff and, you know, and the, the and just all of the great players that y'all have there now, they're the same way. They cut out of that same cloth, out of, you know, Within that same cloth, they with that same style, within that that same humbleness that all those other great Detroit athletes exhibited. You do you agree with that? Yeah, I do. I, I think they're there for a reason, and that reason is to win. Uh, it's not to uh, make commercials. It's not to to get their ca- their face on camera all the time. It, it first and foremost, they are there to work as a team and to win. That's that's a big difference from a lot of other teams right now. But yeah, uh, I agree with with what you just said. Yeah, they're they they're not real flashy, but boy, they are playing some really good football, and uh, they're hungry. They're hungry to to bring a championship to the city of Detroit and the state of Michigan. Now, one thing about D- Detroit that I kind of looked this up, and maybe you could correct me on this, but I heard this somewhere. Couple of you know interesting historical nuggets about the Lions. One, the Lions have hosted as many. Super Bowls as they have home playoff games since 1957. Is that correct? Well, let's see. They, they've hosted a couple at the Silver Dome and they hosted one at Ford Field. So that's three. And right. they have one playoff win. So yeah, they've, they've got more than, than they've got. Wins. They got one more playoff game than they had Super Bowls. Just one. Right. Another yeah. one is Matthew Stafford was the first. Pro Bowl quarterback the Lions have had since Bobby Lane? Um, I I don't know about that. I think Greg Landry might have been a Pro Bowl quarterback back in the early 70s. Okay. But, but yeah, it's been that long. It's been that long since we had a quarterback uh, in the Pro Bowl, yes. Because, I mean, when I, when I think of cause quarterback, I always gravitate as a quarterback because I played quarterback when I was in junior high and a little bit of high school. Um. When I think of Detroit Lion quarterbacks, the first one I think of is Rodney Pete. Then I think of Eric Kramer. Yes. Scott Mitchell. Um, Eric Hipple, I remember. Uh, Gary Danielson is as far back as I can go before I get to Bobby <laughs> Lane. Okay. Yeah. Now, I read, now, now, later on, I read about guys like Bill Munson and then Earl Morrow, who I did a little bit about on my pat on, on a previous podcast I did. He played for, he had a cup of coffee with the Lions, even though he, he went to Michigan State. Um, you know, but the Lions, but with, you know, with Stafford was the, like the first really star quarterback that the Lions have had since Bobby Lane. Okay, and then now you have another generational type quarterback in Jared Goff. You know, what's your what's your opinions on Goff? Uh, my son and I were my oldest son and I, Adam, were talking about this uh, when he first signed, and we thought we we were so devastated when Stafford got traded to the Rams. I mean, that just ripped our hearts out because what you saw in that Super Bowl season with the Rams is what we saw in Detroit for nine or ten years that he was here. We knew that this guy was good. He just didn't have the supporting cast around him to win. And as soon as he got to Los Angeles, he proved what a good quarterback he was with a decent team. So when Goff came here, we thought, oh, well, I don't know about this guy. Uh, just we didn't know that much about him. So we were very reserved. And 
And so we said, well, we'll give him a year or so. We'll see how he does. And that first year uh, in Detroit was not very good. And even up to the first uh, six or seven games of last year, he was just okay. I mean, they had like a one in six record. And then he started catching fire at the end of the season. And now this season with, uh, you know, starting out the season beating the Chiefs and uh, the, the games that they've won and beating Green Bay for the second time this calendar year. I mean, <laughs> they beat him in the last game uh, back in January for last season. And we are sold on Jerry Goff now. He's proven to us that this guy can play. He's the perfect fit for Detroit. Uh, he, he fits the mentality of the head coach and and the, the supporting cast they have around him right now is really good. So, yeah, we're we're on the Jared Goff bandwagon now, but it, it didn't start out that way when we first got him. Now, you, you, you spoke about uh, the head coach of, of the Lions, and you also spoke before we came on about where coaches go to die. <laughs> and that was something that I did not realize. You know, share that with what you had just shared that with me before we okay. came on. This Detroit is literally where coaches go to die. Uh, yes, it is. Uh, I, I love spreadsheets. I make spreadsheets on everything. I have a spreadsheet of every football game I've ever been to, uh, high school, not, well, not so much, not so much high school, but, uh, NFL, CFL, uh, arena football. I have a spreadsheet. I can track any game score where I sat, all that stuff. So I came up with a spreadsheet, uh, some time ago and I went back to Buddy Parker, uh, from 1951 to 1956. And since Buddy Parker, only three coaches in Detroit Lions history have ever gone uh, on to coach another NFL team. So Buddy Parker was here from 51 to 56, and then he went to the Pittsburgh Steelers and coached there from 57 to 64. And right after him was George Wilson. Uh, he was with the Lions from 57 to 64, and he went on to coach the Miami Dolphins. The matter he was the very first coach of the Dolphins when they were an expansion yeah. team, their very first years, he was right. their coach. Yep. So, and then after those two guys, uh, the coaches in Detroit never saw another head coaching job in the NFL. You had Harry Gilmer, Joe Schmidt, Don, McCaff uh, Don McCafferty, Rick Forzano, Tommy Hudspeth, Monty Clark, Daryl Rogers, Wayne Fonts, Bobby Ross, Gary Moeller, who was uh, there as an interim head coach, Marty Mortingwig, and Steve Mariucci. Never coached another game in the NFL wow. after they left Detroit. And then you get to uh, 2005, Dick Duran, who was a former player for the Lions, yes. and was your interim coach at the end of that season. He went on after that to coach the Buffalo Bills from 2006 to 2009. And then after that, we had Rod Marinelli, Jim Schwartz, Jim Caldwell, Matt Patricia, uh, Daryl Bevel on an interim basis. And none of those guys ever went on to coach another NFL game. And now we have Dan Campbell. So yeah, Detroit is a place where head coaching careers come to die. If you can't make it in Detroit, you're not going to make it anywhere else. <laughs> That is so interesting. Now, see, I love statistics like that. I, I really do. Um, you mentioned one of the coaches that's near and dear to my heart, Bobby Ross, because he was the coach of the Chargers on their only Super Bowl appearance, which was the longest night of my life. But anyway. Uh, <laughs> he was a good coach. He was an outstanding coach. He was an outstanding but, coach, especially here in, in Atlanta. He coached Georgia Tech to a national title, you know, and – Boss Ross, that's, I mean, people is still crazy about Boss Ross here. Um, and, and finally, I'm going to let you go with this, okay? Yeah. I'm more than sure 
that I'm just going to put out there in the atmosphere that you're going to have some great, great memories of Lions football games later on this season with all the incoming success. I'm putting it out there that this team is going to be really successful and have a deep playoff run. But going back into your memory banks here, what was some of the, your favorite Lions memories? If you could say, okay, this is like my all-time favorite Lions memory, what would that be? Well, having uh, having seen uh, uh, who was it there? Uh, uh, I'm, I'm losing my train of thought here. Uh, Lem Barney and Charlie Sanders, knowing that I saw them, you know, towards the end of their careers, that was that was really great. Um, I was I was there to see uh, in 1977. I saw Hank Stram coaching the New Orleans Saints yes, at the, yes. at the Silverdome. They came to town here. Um, I was there uh, when uh, Bubba Baker had his birthday one time, uh, and so they made a big deal out of that. But you know, I've just I've I've seen a lot of uh, a lot of great things. I saw Doug Flutie play quarterback for the San Diego Chargers uh, against Detroit, and they beat Detroit. And he's one of my all-time favorite players. In fact, I've seen him play in the Canadian Football League, and I saw him play in the USFL back in the '80s. I did a lot of traveling when I was single and had money. So yeah, I followed him <laughs> wherever I could. But yeah, he came to Detroit and, and saw him beat the Lions. Uh, and then there's the 0-16 season. That was that was just so hard to endure. But because of that 0-16 season, we got Matthew Stafford, and things got a little better after that. We never used to say the, uh, the USFL. My favorite team in the USFL, believe it or not, was the Michigan Panthers. The reason why that was was because of Bobby Abair. Bobby Abair, yes. Louisiana native, he grew up in a place called Cutoff, Louisiana, which is about an hour east of where I grew up. You know, right there along the Gulf Coast, and if and watching seeing someone who was like the, the, the last name Abair, which if you're not really familiar with Louisiana culture. A bear in South Louisiana is like Smith anywhere oh, really? else. It is a very, very popular, very, very is it's a name that you hear everywhere. You know the the, the French Acadian uh, names, so forth. But um, my favorite memory, and anytime I think of the Lions, I always think of this: is that run Barry Sanders made against the Cowboys in the '91 divisional playoff game. I thought that was when he bounced off of like five or six people and made the defense and made Ken Norton fall down and, and all of this. And it was one of the greatest runs I have ever seen. And that's one of the great Lions memories that I personally have because I have, I've been watching football since I was seven years old, being the nephew of a, of a high school coach in Louisiana. And whenever I think of the Detroit Lions and whenever I think of Barry Sanders, when I think of football in general, that's one of the images that come to my mind, like right away is Barry Sanders and, and the Detroit Lions. And if anybody, if any group deserves a championship more than anybody is Lions fans. I used to say it was the Saints fans, but Saints got one. So now the, the now it's the Lions turn. All right. Yeah. Well, there's there are four teams that have never sniffed the Super Bowl. Uh, can you name those teams? Oh, absolutely! It's y'all, uh, Cleveland, Houston, and Jacksonville. Absolutely, yeah. And Jacksonville and Houston, you can kind of understand they're they're somewhat new. They're new you know, teams, even though they've been 
been around for a while, but Cleveland and Detroit, those are teams that go back to the fifties. They played each other four times in the NFL championship game in 19, in the fifties. Right. You know, and Detroit won three of them. So, I mean, with a, a, a team that had so many great players on that Browns team back then, uh, Otto Graham and, and um, Lou the Toe Groza and just so many other guys, right. it's just surprising that they have never been to a Super Bowl. So my son and I keep saying our, our fantasy right now is a uh, Browns, Lions Super Bowl. Oh, that would, that be, would be awesome. <laughs> that would be that would be great. That's almost like it was asking once upon a time, asking for a Red Sox Cubs Super Bowl. I mean, yeah. World Series. I mean, yeah, you know. And um, I think that that you kind of compare the, the 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 Lions to the NFL's version of the Cubs because they're lovable. People like them, but their biggest tragedy is never really getting there. Cleveland, on the other hand, is a lot like the Red Sox, where they get right there, right to the edge, and then something weird happens, and yeah. then they get denied. So I think that that's like the the, the parallels, because I love making parallels between sports and you know historical <laughs> sports and stuff like that. And I think that's the parallel, you know, that the Lions are more like the Cubs in baseball, where that they they've never been there, they never really come close to getting there. And then one time they're gonna just gonna break through and just shock and just shock everybody. Yeah. Well, knock on wood, maybe this is the year. <laughs> now, before I let you go one more time, just talk about your podcast a little bit. You know, you have a great podcast out there that you co-host with your son. You know, talk about that. Well, that was all my son's idea. I mean, he had played around with some podcasts before. And uh, I was I was just retiring from the government uh, back in 2017, and he said we should do a podcast uh, about football. And I, I I reluctantly said okay. And six years later, we are still doing it every week, 52 weeks a year, basically. Uh, but it's called This Week in the World of Football, and uh, we we talk all things football, uh, CFL, NFL. Uh, we we've, we've got a guy in Japan that gives them gives us some scores from the Japanese X League. They play American style football over there. Yeah, and, Greg uh, James. He's been on my show a couple of times. Yep, yep. And uh, so, so we do have the podcast. Uh, if people want to find us, they can find us on Facebook or X or Instagram. And the address there is TWOF Kalamazoo, which stands for the World of Football Kalamazoo. Just a little shorter way of, of saying it. We're on YouTube. Uh, if you go to YouTube and you search the World of Football Kalamazoo or you use the handle at the World of Football, you'll find us on YouTube also. And... Um, yeah, uh, podcast is available on all podcast platforms. That was Randy Snow, once again, the co-host of the podcast, This Week in the World of Football. And just a reminder, if you happen to like what you hear here and you would like to hear more, please do not hesitate and like and subscribe to the podcast. Also, you could drop us a line right here at our email, which is historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. And also, you can follow us on Twitter or X at HistoricallySP2. And coming up after this short break, we'll take a look at five games on this weekend's NFL slate of games. But we will take a look at them through the lens of history. We call it the Historically Speaking Matchups. The five games that we're highlighting this week are rematches of a pair of early Super Bowls, two conference title games that are the foundational rivalries of the NFL, and a game from 83 years ago that gave rise to the term bulletin board material. That's next. This is the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast.
At the Sports History Network, we're all about the sports yesteryear, and so we're pleased to introduce you to Row One, an online memorabilia gallery and shop that brings sports history to life. The Row One Gallery features over 5,200 gorgeously reproduced prints of team posters, game program covers, game tickets, and advertisements in baseball, pro and college football, pro and college basketball, and more. Any gallery item may be printed in a variety of sizes on wood, metal, canvas, acrylic, or poster paper. It's your choice. In the Row One Shop, you can pick from thousands of unique items that feature retro and historical backgrounds dating back to 1876. We have everything from clothing to phone cases to mugs, even shower curtains. Go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row one for access to the full row one catalog. When you buy from the gallery today, you can instantly save 15% on your purchase. All you have to do is enter the code SHN15 and your discount will be applied. That's SHN15. That's it. Simple. Save 15% off all your prints in the Row 1 Gallery. Just go to sportshistorynetwork.com backslash row1. And don't forget to check out all the podcasts on the Sports History Network. Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of filmmusic.io. Hello and welcome back to the program. You are tuned in to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. It's week five of the NFL regular season and teams are still trying to sort themselves out in the standings. We are still somewhat in the early stages of the season with a long way to go. However, we're beginning to have at least a hint of an idea of what may possibly lay ahead as the season progresses. Now, if you listen to the show, this is where we have something called the Historically Speaking Matchups, where we highlight games that are rematches of other famous games from back in the day. But before we get into that, here is a quick word from one of our sponsors here at the Sports History Network, and that is Home Field Apparel. In some parts of the country, the climate is starting to change to that familiar fall feeling, that tingle that you feel is not just the pumpkin spice in your coffee, but is actually the thrill of college football season that is in full swing around the country. And since it is indeed college football season, dive into the history books with Home Field Apparel, the premium collegiate apparel brand from Indianapolis. Home Field crafts incredibly comfortable gear designed with iconic vintage notch to over 150 colleges. A library of history right there on your chest. Home Field is the Indiana Jones of collegiate apparel, uncovering hidden gems from school archives, unique mascots, logos, and even unforgettable moments frozen in time. Visit homefieldapparel.com and shop the archives. Home Field Apparel where comfort, nostalgia, and the spirit of college football unite. Again, that's homefieldapparel.com. Now, as we mentioned before, this is week five of the NFL regular season, and the season is just rounding into shape, but it's far too early to determine who will be in Vegas on the night of February 11th. Historically speaking matchup, game one, Bears versus Commanders. Now, the first game on the list of five I have here is being was being mentioned a few weeks ago. 
in the wake of the 70-20 thrashing of the Miami Dolphins over the Denver Broncos. The Dolphins had the opportunity to either tie or break that record, which has stood in the league for going on 83 years. The date, December 8, 1940, at Griffith Stadium in Washington. Now that afternoon, the Chicago Bears, coached by the great George Hallis and led on the field by Hall of Fame quarterback Sid Luckman, took on the then Washington Redskins led by quarterback Sammy Ball. This game for the NFL Championship was witnessed by over 38,000 fans in D.C. But it was also the first NFL title game to be broadcast nationally on the radio carried by the Mutual Radio Network. Chicago and Washington were bitter rivals as they still are today, but this was different. Not only was it a championship game, but the emotions of the Chicago Bears were stirred up three weeks earlier after Washington beat Chicago 7-3. After the game, Washington owner George Preston Marshall said of the Bears, quote, They were crybabies. And quitters, they were quitters when the going got tough. Thus beginning the great tradition of Washington football team owners screwing up their team. But before the game, Hallis posted the quote on the bulletin board in the locker room, thus beginning the term bulletin board material. He told his players, quote, Gentlemen, this is what George Preston Marshall thinks of you. Well, I think you're a great team. Now go out there and prove it. He also got some added help during the game from his friend Clark Shaughnessy who was the head coach at Stanford at the time and who helped Hallis devise a game plan to counter Washington's linebacker shifts that they were really known for. The result? The T formation with the man in motion. The basis of what every football team runs to this day. And to say that Washington was unprepared, well, <laughs> that was an understatement. On the second play of the game, Bill Osmaski tore through the Washington defense for, the, for a 68-yard touchdown and the route was on. Washington had a chance to counter on the ensuing drive, but slinging Sammy's pass to receiver Charlie Malone was dropped in the end zone on, and on fourth down, they attempted a field goal, which was missed. And then from that point on, it was all Bears, to say the least. The Bears went into intermission with a 28 to nothing lead and the beatdown was just beginning. In the second half playing mostly with second string and bench players, the Bears kept pouring it on, scoring another 45 points to arrive at the final score of 73 to nothing. Yeah. 73 to nothing. And this was a championship game. Chicago rolled up 501 yards of total offense with 382 on the ground. Actually, it wasn't all the offense. Bears defense victimized Sammy Ball with eight interceptions and with three of those returned for touchdowns. It was the most points ever scored by a team in the NFL and the largest margin of victory in league history. Also, it is the largest margin of victory by a team in all major sports. It was only matched by the Memphis Grizzlies of the NBA, beating the Oklahoma City Thunder by 73 points in 2021. One quick postscript to this game though. A reporter asked Sammy Ball after the game if the drop touchdown pass in the first quarter, if it was actually caught, would it have made a difference in the game? Ball's reply, I think the only difference it would have made 
is that we would have lost 73 to 7. As we go in chronological order here, the next two matchups are two past Super Bowls. The historically speaking matchup, Game 2, Packers versus Raiders. The first previous Super Bowl we talk about took place on January 14, 1968 at the Orange Bowl in Miami. The Green Bay Packers of the NFL took on the Oakland Raiders, champions of the American Football League. The Packers were trying to iron their second Super Bowl championship while the Raiders were looking for the major upset. Now there had been talk leading into that game that Packers head coach Vince Lombardi was hinting at retirement at the end of the game, which was one storyline heading into Super Sunday. The game itself was not much of one. After two Don Chandler field goals, the Packers quarterback Bart Starr connected with Boyd Dollar on a 62-yard touchdown pass to give the Packers a 13-0 lead. The Raiders would get back into the game, however, right before halftime. Darrell LaMonica found receiver Bill Miller for the Raiders' first score of the game, making the score 13-7 at halftime. Now, right before the Packers came out of the locker room for the second half, Hall of Fame offensive lineman Jerry Kramer said to his teammates in one of the most famous quotes in Super Bowl history, he said, quote, let's play the last 30 minutes for the old man, unquote. In the second half, the Packers did just that, thanks to their defense. The Packers had Raiders run power running back Hubert Dixon in check and pulled off the game's signature play. A 60-yard interception return for a touchdown by Packers Hall of Fame defensive back Herb Adderley. The first pick six in Super Bowl history. While Adderley shined on defense, the MVP award went to quarterback Bart Starr for the second year in a row, passing for 202 yards and a touchdown. And when the clock hit triple zeros, Lombardi was carried off the field by his players, thus beginning, unknowingly, the Super Bowl tradition of carrying the victorious coach off the field. The Packers claimed the 33-14 win in Miami for the Packers' second consecutive Super Bowl. Two seasons later was Super Bowl IV, the first Super Bowl ever played in New Orleans where we find our third game of five. Historically speaking matchup game three, Chiefs versus Vikings. Now, of course, if you're a certain age, this game is a classic and not because of the game itself. NFL Films devised the idea of miking up Kansas City Chiefs head coach Hank Stram for, this, for their Super Bowl game against Minnesota. This, of course, was pure gold. I sincerely think that there's nowhere in America that you could be in the company of a group of people and say, quote, 65 toss power trap, unquote, or matriculate the ball down the field. And no one and no one knows what you're talking about. Super Bowl IV wasn't much of a game. The Chiefs won 23-7 for their first Super Bowl title, which was also marked the triumphant end of the American Football League. But that game is more than just a one-sided Super Bowl that saw quarterback Lynn Dawson win MVP honors. It became part of American sports culture. A year later, the fourth game on this trip through NFL's memory lane took place, and it was the birth of one of the greatest postseason rivalries in all of American sports. Historically speaking matchup, Week 5, Dallas versus San Francisco. It was a historic in a lot of different ways. 
the date January 3rd, 1971 in San Francisco's Kizar Stadium. In this afternoon, the Dallas Cowboys, the perennial NFL playoff team at the time that never seemed to win the big game, on this late afternoon in January, they faced the NFL Cinderella story of 1970, the surprising San Francisco 49ers led by veteran quarterback John Brody who was an okay quarterback for most of his career up to that point. Yet, he led the 49ers to their best season since the late 1950s and an upset win the week before against the Minnesota Vikings in sub-Arctic Bloomington, Minnesota. This matchup between Dallas and San Francisco would be the first ever NFC Championship game and the first time that these two future postseason rivals actually met in the playoffs. In fact, the 49ers and Cowboys have met six times in the NFC Championship game, by far the most numerous matchup for the conference title. The game was also historic because this would be the final NFL game ever played at historic Kizar Stadium. That was just a stone throw away from the Haight-Ashbury section of San Francisco if you're into that sort of thing. The stadium is also famous in pop culture. This was the stadium that was the backdrop for the Clint Eastwood classic Dirty Harry that premiered in 1971 where the film's antagonist Scorpio played by Andrew Robinson worked as a caretaker of the stadium and lived under the grandstand. The next season the Niners would move into the then newly remodeled Candlestick Park. The game itself with the winner moving on to Super Bowl V to take on the Baltimore Colts was a defensive was a defensive struggle primarily in the first half. The only scoring came on field goals. One field goal by Niners kicker Bruce Gossett and one field goal by Cowboys kicker Mike Clark. In the third quarter, the Cowboys caught a break when linebacker Leroy Jordan intercepted a John Brody pass and returned it to the 49er 13. On the very next play, Cowboys running back Dwayne Thomas, the NFL's Offensive Rookie of the Year, broke several tackles and sauntered into the end zone for the first touchdown of the game. On the next drive, Brody was victimized once again, this time an interception by Hall of Fame defensive back Mel Renfro. This led to a 62-yard scoring drive capped off by a Walt Garrison 3-yard touchdown run. With the Cowboys holding a 17-13 lead, the Niners would attempt to come back, scoring on a 26-yard touchdown pass from John Brody to tight end Dick Witcher. But the Niners would get no closer, sporting the final game at Kizar Stadium and losing 17-10. The Cowboys would go on to lose to the Colts in a mistake-filled Super Bowl V in Miami, 16-13. Another great postseason rivalry, more in contemporary times, is the matchup of our fifth game. Historically speaking, matchup for Week 5, Steelers versus Ravens. Now, over the last 20 years or so, the Ravens and Steelers have gotten together and played some of the most physical and emotional games in recent playoff lore. And this game was no different on the night of, of January 18, 2009 at Heinz Field in Pittsburgh for the AFC Championship. The Steelers would go, on, go out to an early 13-0 lead in the first half thanks to a pair of Jeff Reed field goals and a 66-yard touchdown pass from Ben Roethlisberger to Santonio Holmes. However, right before the half, the Ravens wrestled a little bit of the momentum from the Steelers as Willis McGahee scored on a 3-yard touchdown run to make the score 13-7 at intermission. In the third quarter, another Jeff Reed field goal from the Steelers make it, made the score 16-7. 
the Raider Ravens behind McGahee scored once again on a one-yard touchdown plunge to cut the Steelers' lead to two. Both offenses struggled for the remainders of the game, but in typical fashion between these two teams, the game's signature play occurred thanks to a defensive play. Ravens quarterback Joe Flacco was intercepted by Steelers defensive back Troy Polamalu and weaved his way through the entire Ravens offensive team for a 40-yard touchdown run that sealed the game 23-14. The Steelers would advance to Super Bowl 43 where they defeated the Cardinals in one of the most exciting Super Bowls ever, capturing their sixth Lombardi Trophy. Those are five great and memorable games that will be recalled in memory this weekend in week five of the NFL's regular season. Coming up next to conclude this week's episode, we're going to take a trip back 40 years to the very first World Series I remember watching. It was somewhat of a throwback to an earlier time in baseball history. Now, what do I mean by that? Well, the two cities were only less than 100 miles apart, and the teams that were going on the road were actually traveling by train. Coming up next is the story of me and the 1983 World Series nicknamed the I-95 Series. Coming up after this break. You're listening to the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast, a member of the Sports History Network. We here at the Sports History Network proudly partner with 26 podcasts, all revolving around the history of sports. But did you know that many of our hosts were sports history authors way before they started their shows? It's true. We've got Joe Ziemba, host of When Football Was Football. Joe Zagurski, host of Pro Football in the 1970s. Mark Morthier, host of Yesterday Sports. Tommy Phillips, host of Lombardi Memories. And Scott Adamson, co-host of From the 55-Yard Line. All these authors have many books for you to choose from. To check them out, go to our website at sportshistorynetwork.com slash sportshistorybooks. Pick up your copy today! Soundtrack provided by Kevin McLeod of FilmMusic.io. Hello, welcome back to the program. And right now is the final segment of the show. Is what I would like to call the shout out. And this is where we send the shout out to a particular athlete or event or some consequential thing that happened in sports in the past that I personally saw or experienced in real time. In this episode, we'll travel back to October of 1983 and the World Series. Now, at this time, I was 10 years old growing up in a small town in South Louisiana called New Iberia, and my interest in baseball was that of maybe a light observer. My dad, well, he really wasn't a baseball fan at all, but my grandfather was. In fact, he was a huge Dodgers fan, and his love for his team extended back to their days in Brooklyn and the and Jackie Robinson. Now my grandfather was the sports fan in the house in the years before I reached to that level of fandom and ultimately surpassed it. So the World Series that year broadcast on ABC 
by Al Michaels, Howard Cosell, and former Baltimore Orioles manager Earl Weaver was between the American League pennant winning and Earl Weaver's former team, the Baltimore Orioles, led by the pitching of Scott McGregor and the power hitting of Eddie Murray against the Philadelphia Phillies. Now, sports writers called the 83 Phillies the Wheeze Kids because the average age of the team was only third. The average age of the team was 32, and it was taken from the Wiz Kids moniker from the 1950s surprising pennant-winning Phillies because of that team's overall youth. Now, the Phillies were led on the field by the three remaining cogs of the old big red machine from the Cincinnati Reds from the mid-1970s. First baseman Pete Rose, who was 42. Second baseman Joe Morgan, who had turned 40 during the series. And Tony Perez, who filled in for Pete Rose during the series. He was 41. Yet the best player on the Phillies was third baseman Mike Schmidt, who clocked 40 home runs that year and 109 RBIs. The Orioles were led by manager Joe Altabelli, who was in his first season and replaced manager Earl Weaver, who actually retired and went into television. And along with Murray, the Orioles offense was paced by shortstop Cal Ripken Jr. and catcher Rick Dempsey. Now, since the two cities, Philadelphia and Baltimore, were less than 100 miles apart, this would be the first World Series since 1956 that air travel would not be needed. Both teams took to the road by train, hence sports riders dubbed the series the I-95 series because of the interstate highway that connects Baltimore to Philly. The first two games of the series opened at Memorial Stadium in Baltimore. The Phillies took the first game thanks to home runs by Joe Morgan and Gary Maddox, winning 2-1. Yet in Game 2, the Orioles behind a complete game pitched by Mike Boddicker and clutch home run by outfielder Jim Lowenstein, the Orioles claimed a 4-1 win to even the series at one game apiece heading to Philadelphia on the train for the next three games. In Game 3 at Veterans Stadium in Philly, the Phillies' ace Steve Carlton was on the mound. Carlton would become the first pitcher since Grover Cleveland Alexander in, 18, in 1928 to have won, been a 300-game winner and start a World Series game. Yet it would be another Hall of Fame pitcher that would get the headlines. Oriole pitcher Jim Palmer, who would come in relief for starting pitcher Mike Flanagan, kept the Phillies in check while the Orioles would do just enough to win 3-2 and take a two-games-to-one series lead. There will be more about Jim Palmer in a minute. On to Game 4, and this game was historic. This game, Game 4, taking place on Saturday, August 15, 1983. This would be the last World Series game to have a scheduled start during the day and played under sunny skies. The following season, the Tigers and Padres would have a day game for Game 3, but it was played under overcast skies. Then, during the 1987 series, the second game would have been scheduled, but that was a scheduled day game, but that game was in the Hubert H. Humphrey Metrodome in Minnesota, played indoors. This game, a more high score, more high scoring than the other three, saw the Orioles win 5-4 at Veterans Stadium, leaving the Orioles just one win away from their first world championship since 1970. Game 5 became the Eddie Murray Show, mired in a slump for the Orioles in the previous few games of the postseason. Murray came through with two home runs in the game, 
while catcher Rick Dempsey added one insurance home run for the 5-0 win, capturing Baltimore's third and most recent world championship. Dempsey was named the series' most valuable player and set a record for the most extra base hits in a five-game World Series. Now, there are a number of postscripts about this World Series that I found extremely interesting. First one, or more accurately the first few, deal with Orioles Hall of Fame pitcher Jim Palmer. In Game 3, he came in relief for Orioles starting pitcher Mike Flanagan and got the win. By his relief appearance, he became the first pitcher in World Series history to pitch in the Fall Classic in three different decades, the 60s, the 70s, and the 80s. With the, with the win in Game 3, Palmer also set the record for the longest span between World Series wins, which is 17 seasons. The only other World Series win came in Game 2 of the 1966 World Series when he pitched a complete, ga a complete game four-hit shutout beating the great Sandy Koufax and the LA Dodgers 6-0 at Chavez Ravine. Also about Palmer, he's the only player to have played with the Orioles in all of their World Series appearances. 1966, 1969, 1970, 1971, 1979, and in 1983. Then there's the final postscript. And this is about the Orioles themselves, and this proves that irony in sports sometimes go hand in hand. In the 1983 series, the Orioles became the first team since the 1961 New York Yankees to win games 3, 4, and 5 on the road. They also coupled with that, they became the only the fourth team ever to win four straight games in the series after losing game one. It was done previously in 1969 by the New York Mets. And their opponents in that series that year? The Baltimore Orioles. Oh, the irony. And that's all I got for this edition of the Historically Speaking Sports Podcast. And please, if you have not done so already, please subscribe wherever you hear this podcast. Also, if you want, please drop us a line and you could do so at historically.speaking.sports at gmail.com. Or you could check us out on Twitter at historicallysp2. And remember, please do not keep this great podcast a secret. Tell your family, tell your friends, tell your neighbor. Hell, tell a passerby on the street if you think they like sports history. This episode comes to you from the Bill King Memorial Studios in the sports wing of TM4 Enterprises located in scenic suburban Atlanta in the shadow of Stone Mountain. And until next time, stay cool and stay blessed. Hey there, Sports History fan. This is Arnie Chapman, a.k.a. the Football History Dude, and I wanted to thank you for stopping by to listen to another episode here on the Sports History Network. 
Our podcasters are passionate about uncovering and sharing sports stories from yesteryear. And if you didn't know it already, we have over 30 shows across the network covering all sorts of sports history topics. In fact, here's a glimpse into one of our awesome podcasts here on the network. Each week, the official Football Learning Academy podcast will take you deep into the history of pro football through interviews with players, coaches, or administrators in the NFL, as well as interviews with Pro Football Hall of Fame selectors, authors, and historians. You'll learn how the game evolved and important moments that shaped the sport into what it is today. And don't miss the Pro Football History Nugget of the Week. Listen to the official Football Learning Academy podcast on the Sports History Network. How about that? I bet you're super hyped to go listen to that new podcast, right? Well, to learn about this show and all the other podcasts on the network, head over to sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Again, that's sportshistorynetwork.com forward slash podcast. Head over there today to find your next favorite sports history podcast.